Welcome to another exciting episode of Carving the Divine TV. My name is Yujiro Seki. I'm a director, writer, and the producer of the documentary Carving the Divine. Carving the Divine is about the Buddhist sculptors of Japan, and I'm ready to present it for the first time in the world. But before I do so, I thought it would be a great idea to introduce basic concepts of Buddhism and the history of Buddhism so that when you guys finally watch my documentary, you guys can watch it at the maximum value. Today, we're going to be talking about the Shingon Buddhism again. I know you guys have been requesting me. Uh, you guys want to know more about the Shingon Buddhism. And I know because it's esoteric nature, when you look something online, and uh, you know, when you uh, read a book, you know, we make it more confused. So, you know, rather than us struggling, I thought it would be a great idea to bring somebody who can explain to us about the uh, Shingon Buddhism like uh, never before. So I would love to introduce to you Reverend uh, Kosho Finchi. Uh, welcome, welcome to our show. Thank you, Seki-san, it's very nice to be here. <laughs> great, great. I know you are very famous in your community, but just in case for the people who don't know anything about you, please introduce yourself. Uh, as, as I said yesterday at another event, I'm only uh, well-known because I'm the tallest uh, Shingon minister in, in the United States. <laughs> um, I'm Reverend Kosho Finch. I am currently the head minister of Heimjoji Shingon Buddhist Temple in Portland, Oregon. Um, before that, I was an assistant minister at the uh, Hawaii Koyasan uh, Shingon Mission in Hawaii, in the islands. And um, I started off at the Northern California Koyasan Temple in Sacramento. So that was quite a long time ago, but uh, now I'm here in the beautiful Pacific Northwest. Wonderful, wonderful. So. Uh, I'm just curious, I haven't met so many uh, American Shingon priests. So what made you become a, a Shingon priest? I know that there are many, many other uh, Buddhist traditions, uh, including Japanese uh, Buddhist, uh, Buddhism uh, in the United States. So why did you choose uh, Shingon Buddhism? I, that's a good question. I think it's, um, it's unusual. Um, we don't find many Western people um, at the temples here. So I actually became interested in Shingon a um, long time ago by reading a book about the life of Kobodaishi, uh, the founder of Shingon in Japan. And I was very um, inspired by his life story. So not only was he um, brilliant and a calligrapher, poet, um, obviously an enlightened Buddhist master, but also I was very um, encouraged by the practical things that he undertook. So starting the first public school in Japan, um, really helping people directly. I think in the West, Buddhism is sometimes um, looked down on as not being engaged in social issues or not being um, you know, deeply connected with people's daily life. So there in his life story, I found a, a really inspiring um, Buddhist figure. And I didn't know where to find it, um, where, you know, what, how to learn about Shingon. And so um, I'll be giving away a little of my age. When this thing called the internet was invented, uh, I uh, did a Google search when Google was still a uh, 
project at Stanford University students and uh, happened upon a few of the temples on the West Coast. I contacted them and uh, they were very kind to respond and not long after I moved to California and started uh, studying at the temple there. Mm, wonderful. So, uh, yes, we're going to ask a fundamental question first. So, okay. what is Mikyo? I know, you know, Mikyo is considered like an esoteric practice or teaching or you know, esoteric Buddhism, but you know, uh, it's a just a simple translation. So, we don't know what this means. Please tell us. I think um, it, it gets translated as secret in English. And because of that, then people really want to know about it. Um, and so on the one hand, people think secret means we're not going to tell them. And I always find that funny because, um, you know, we have a lot of temples and especially um, if you go to those temples, even here in the West, uh, throughout Hawaii, you'll find people from all walks of life are members of the temples and are actively involved in Shingon practice. So it's not secret in the degree that it's unobtainable. Um, it is an oral tradition. So we do have a component of um, direct transmission between teacher and student that goes back over 1200 years. So it's an unbroken lineage. So the fact that you are given it directly, um, it's not that it's secret, it's that you apprentice to this and there are things that your teacher teaches you directly, they're not written down. Um, the other, I guess, meaning more traditionally of Mikyo is certain things we can express in writing. So you can read the Buddha Sutras and you can learn about the operation of the mind, the way in which our emotions and attachments um, bind us to certain patterns of behavior and the impact that that has. And then the Buddhist teaching about how to undo all of those connections and attachments and the freedom that that gives a person. So those things can be written out very directly. What you can't express in writing is the actual experience. So the actual experience is in some ways mysterious for us because we can't describe it. I can't ever um, you know, create a video, a, a song, a poem, nothing that we can create because it's conditioned, right? It's part of our world that um, is, is not, um, I don't wanna say imperfect, but um, everything here is in a constant state of change. So before that reason, I can't create something here that can express something that's eternal, something that transcends this world. So in that way, it's uh, esoteric or it's beyond rational thought. So Kukai taught that if you practiced the right way, if you had developed the right type of insight, you could see this esoteric meaning. You could see where it was hinted at through the sutras, through any of the Buddhist teaching. So it's sort of like peeling back a layer or maybe an insider's view, we might want to say. Or um, there's a difference between studying enlightenment and actually experiencing it. So you're a filmmaker and um, you use a camera in your work and the camera comes with instructions. So, but the instructions are just the basics to actually create a documentary and um, you know, produce it, require skills that you had to learn by doing 
by apprenticing, by watching others. It's not something you could read specifically. So if someone said, okay, teach me to be a documentary filmmaker, um, you might struggle to put it all down in a manual. It's something that they'd have to come along in the journey with you to learn. So those intangible aspects are mikyo, they are esoteric. It's not secret, it's just something that you really have to engage with directly to understand. Wow, you are super, super articulate. I think you answered uh, the questions for many people. Uh, so I would assume rituals are one of those experiences, right? Yes. Mm, wonderful. So what are single rituals? I think all of society has rituals. So, um, you know, the most common is when you meet someone. Uh, even if you study a foreign language, the first thing you learn is greetings. So, um, you know, whether you bow or shake hands, if you introduce yourself, if you hand your business card to someone with two hands versus one hand, like American style, um, all of these things communicate something to the other person. And if you follow the ritual the right way, it gives a good feeling to the person on the other side. So in the West, if someone has a firm handshake, then it gives you a sense of maybe I can trust this person. Maybe I would listen to them. But if they don't have a good handshake, even if they're very nice, you might think, hmm, I don't know, maybe, maybe there's something I, I'm not sure about with this person. So this is a, a ritual. So in the Buddhist sense, there's a lot of things you need to learn. If you're gonna engage in the formal study of Buddhism, um, many of these things can't be taught very easily through words. Uh, it's easier to follow along and learn by doing. And once you have a certain framework of experience with regard to the teaching, then the teacher can come back later and say, okay, when you're bowing, have this in mind. When you're offering incense, have this in mind. So all of these aspects of learning and education are um, part of internalizing the teaching. Um, ritual is also a type of meditation. So um, how do you get across things that can't be described in language? So uh, like I said, you, you use cameras for your, your work. Um, so you're probably familiar with uh, Henri Cartier-Bresson, the French photographer. And so he had the, a unique statement, you know, the defining moment. And so you can, again, you can learn how to use a camera. You can learn how to use different lenses and how to pull focus and lighting and all these things, right? It's part of a documentary filmmaker or photographer. But when you push the shutter, right? When you take the picture, wh what angle you choose for a certain subject or how you light the scene, all of these things are very intangible. And so ritual is trying to put you in the shoes of the practitioners. It's a way of moving you closer to the actual experience of enlightenment. So um, it's harder um, than other forms. But in many ways, if you can approach it, if you can grasp it through ritual, then it's it can be a little bit faster. And faster is relative. Um, 
you know, even, you know, any Buddhist practice is going to take a lifetime, but it can get you there a little bit sooner by um, helping you simulate the experience of the enlightened mind. Mm, very interesting. So are there differences between practitioners and the lay people? So it seems like you have to be practitioners to experience such a beautiful enlightenment. Uh, if it, you are not doing this uh, full time, uh, it is hard for me to imagine uh, to uh, get into the state. It's easier if you do it full time, definitely. Um, you don't have to be ordained necessarily to do it. You can practice. So if you could make time um, every day for practice. So I always teach people, you know, even five minutes a day, but the key is consistency. And um, sometimes people say they're very busy. So I say, if you get up just a little bit earlier, you know, before the kids wake up, you know, carve out a little bit extra time, maybe watch one less TV show, you know, regain this time. But this consistency is really key. So we, there are many types of ritual. Um, many of the forms of meditation taught in Shingon are ritual meditation forms, and they are taught openly. So many of the meditation forms are taught, but it is easier for us to teach them in person. Um, I always do, I welcome people to visit the temple. Um, we have, I think, over 12 temples in Hawaii. Um, I know all of my uh, friends in the uh, Khoisan Jingle Mission of Hawaii would welcome you if you visited the temple. And, um, you know, meditation classes are available and they are ritual meditation. Mm. So can you tell us more about the rituals? Uh, any examples of rituals? Um, when you enter a temple, you're starting the ritual, regardless of the tradition. So um, if you're in Japan, you know, if you, a lot of times there's a place for you to wash your hands and rinse your mouth before you enter the, te the temple or shrine. Um, at Shingon temples, more formal halls have a container with powdered incense. So people bow at the front door, they enter with a different type of mind, prostrate, um, offer incense, recite prayers, recite sutras and mantras. Um, it changes your frame of mind. So all day long, you're in the frame of mind of uh, making money, providing for your family. You're probably, if you're in school, you're studying so that you can make money and provide for your family. And so that type of mind brings up a lot of emotions, a lot of uh, difficulties, strife. Um, and we have reactions to all of these things. So all of these things come up and any kind of ritual meditation is an opportunity for us to slowly peel back all of those layers of attachment, trauma, all these different things that we bring with us. It does take time. Um, you know, most people don't start really practicing until they're at least 20 or, you know, older. So you've got at least 20 years of things in this life to undo. So it, it does take time. So I always tell people, um, you know, they have to have some patience, but the ritual aspect of it, of entering, you know, following along, even if you're 
you know, watching someone else perform the ritual, it's, they're sharing their meditation with you. So listening to the chanting, um, I've taken people to Japan and after the morning service, they often say that, you know, that was the most calm they've ever been, or they felt incredibly peaceful listening to all of the monks chant. So this ritual form is a way of kind of directly engaging with the teaching. Um, and it can be very transformative. And so that's really one of the benefits for a ritual is this transformative aspect. You get transported out of your daily routine and you're placed into a completely different scenario, a different way of thinking, a different way of experiencing. And that can, I guess my words would be, um, it can sort of boost you forward um, in your understanding. So if you have some experience, then you can bring that experience back to your study. You can bring your experience back to your own practice. So at home, maybe you're like, oh, I'm frustrated. I don't feel like I've made progress. But I remember that experience I had at the temple. I remember that experience I had when I went to Japan. And that memory can help move you or keep you going. Mm, wonderful, wonderful. Very beautifully said. So uh, yes, I think Goma ritual, uh, one of the most uh, famous rituals in uh, Shingon Buddhism, uh, at least uh, for outsiders. Uh, yes, I think it serves this purpose, but you know, we don't know that much about the Goma ritual. I know it's a fire ritual. Uh, you uh, put the fires and the, you know, it's a, almost like a, for Westerners, maybe it's a witchcraft and stuff. So, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, please tell us uh, more about the Goma ritual. Um. I would say this is the most, you know, one of the more spectacular rituals that we have in Shingon. So um, I always joke that, you know, we, we are setting the temple on fire on a regular basis. So, you know, come watch. Um, so we're, we're using directly the imagery of fire as part of um, our spiritual practice. And I think it helps to understand, um, well, so we're experiencing, um, historic forest fires here in the Pacific Northwest. And so many people right now think of fire in a destructive way. But traditionally, it's known as a transformative energy or transformative element. And the way fire was used historically was to transform something like metal, right? You take the raw ore and you add fire, and then you get rid of the impurities and you're left with the pure metal or you take a um you know uh, a softer metal you combine them you get an alloy that's stronger has have better uh, properties so we're bringing that element right something that's very primal something that's very um, basic component of the universe into a spiritual practice so from a Buddhist stance, we're looking at this fire as how do you transform the person? So you're taking all of your um, negative things, all of the things that are obstructions to enlightenment. So uh, hatred, jealousy, anger, aversion, and you're not burning them up, you're transforming them, right? So you're taking away your false understanding of these emotions and components of the mind and seeing that if you can turn it around, 
it can be joy and happiness and compassion. So every negative emotion has the potential for something positive, something that can actually benefit our spiritual practice. What's unique about the goma is it's done outside the person. So we have on the altar, um, you know, our focus is not only inside, but also outside. So we're offering things into the fire and we're visualizing you know, this is transforming a part of my consciousness. This is transforming the consciousness of the people. So if you attend the goma, you have the opportunity to write the uh, gomagi, you have the stick so you can write your wishes or what are your obstacles. So whenever I perform this, I get to see, you know, as I'm offering those sticks into the fire, what are people uh, praying for? What are their hopes? And all of their hopes are about transforming themselves and transforming their life. And so um, if we can really focus on that, it can be very powerful because it's something we can see. It's tangible. It's not just someone sitting silently. It's something that we can engage with directly. So our our physical written desire is physically, you know, transformed in the fire. So the more we engage with this, this active practice, um, the more we can transform. I think it's, you can make a, you know, when people have really good travel, they travel someplace new, they can learn a lot about themselves. If they go to a foreign country and they're, they really understand the culture, people come back with a different, understanding of their own life and ritual practice is a way for you you know in a very controlled area to try to transform a part of yourself and then come away different come away with a different perspective so it can be very powerful and i think it was always meant to be this way it was meant to i think shock people in a good way um, and get them out of their routine um, get them out of their kind of day-to-day thinking so I, I think in this way, the, the Goma especially is something when people come to the temple and see it, um, they're often, you know, quite taken by it. Um, I remember I, I invited a, a, a PhD candidate in California to the temple once and he wanted to see the, uh, the Goma. And afterwards he, he asked my teacher to inspect the altar because he couldn't understand from a material science perspective how um it burned in that space and he wanted to see what what went in it so for even for from him his scientific mind was struggling in many ways and then after you know he got a close-up look he had a very a different perspective he he relaxed part of his this mental struggle um stopped and he, he looked very calm peaceful so i think sometimes our jobs our daily life can be so um, rigid and kind of put us into a formulaic way of thinking. We need something maybe dramatic to have this breakthrough, to have a different viewpoint. So the Goma is one of those. Any kind of ritual practice can be part of that. Mm. So what happens to the practitioner when uh, when they do goma, so uh, they turn into like uh, one of the Buddhist deities uh, in the temple or something. So uh, we're just curious. <laughs> so in all of the uh, ritual practices, um, 
and this is true in, in Tibetan Buddhism as well, you're visualizing that, you know, you and the deity are, are becoming one. And in the Goma and, and, and the others, you have this, this visualization process. So this visualization is, is difficult. It takes a lot of practice to do. Uh, so whenever there's a, a ritual, this is part of that, that practice. And um, in the Goma, what's different is it's sort of, you know, you're visualizing this is happening in the fire. So um, I think it's a, it's a very powerful uh, practice for the practitioner. Um, if you think, if you've ever gone camping um, and people build a fire and everybody gathers around and their experience sitting around the fire telling stories is different than if you don't have a fire. So there's something I think just about this basic element of the universe, fire, that has this potential to be transformative. So building a ritual around, you know, the element of fire is... I think natural for human beings and on a really base level it's um you know we spend a lot of time inside our houses cut off from the universe cut off from nature and there's nothing more um you know basic and elemental in a way than than fire and so i think it helps break down a lot of the intellectual barriers that we have that are keeping us from you know, truly experiencing meditation. Mm. Wonderful. Uh, I heard there's a special goma called Saito Goma. So what is Saito Goma? Um, strictly speaking, Saito Goma is part of Shugendo. And Shugendo, um, this is gonna be really brief, so um, apologies to any any Shugendo practitioners, but um, it's a combination of Shinto, Taoism, and Buddhism. And it might be easier to understand Shugendo as um, part of the Shingon teaching, well, part of any Buddhist teaching, is trying to break down our view of ourself as separate. We always, it's a me, 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 focus in life. Um, we, everything is from our selfish perspective rather than a more broad perspective. So in Shugendo, you do the practices outside, right? Under the stars as part of nature. So you are working to not see such a strong distinction between yourself and the natural world. So instead of inside the temple, they go into the mountain. Right, to see themselves as part of this mountain. And that symbolism has a long history in Asia of why the mountain is chosen. But the Saito Goma is taking this um, same element of fire and making it larger and then bringing it outside. So instead of just the individual practitioner uh, doing the, the Goma on the altar, the Saito Goma becomes you know, huge and the people in the community can you know, gather around and watch from all sides. And um, we actually did this last year in Hawaii. So the um, Waimea Shingle Mission in Kauai, we did the Saito Goma. There's actually a video um, on the temple's YouTube page, so people are interested. So you can see that at the end of the 
um, cyclogoma, the coals, the fire spread out, and then people are invited to walk across. So they're walking across from, uh, maybe we can explain it from this, this way of thinking, this mind to the mind through the world of the Buddhas into the enlightened world. So they actually, you know, we have fire walking as a, as a practice. So to talk about it is one thing, to uh, take off your shoes and walk across the burning coals is a different experience. So I saw a lot of people who, who were, you know, whispering, do we have to walk across? I don't think I can do that. I'm afraid, I'm afraid. And then when it came time, you know, no one was afraid, everyone walked across. Um, and, you know, some people told me afterwards they were afraid to do it. Um, that they thought for sure they would, you know, catch fire. Um, and everyone said, well, it was really, really hot, but I didn't burn. And it was, it was again, transformative for them. So they were able to overcome fear in a very controlled way, right? We, we, we went first. So I walked across before anyone else was invited <laughs> to walk across. Um, so I think this, again, this is an area of, um, you know, direct experience that we can talk about it, but, um, you know, if you have a chance to engage with it, it has an impression on you that's really goes beyond any, you know, written word or, um, book or description. It's, it's something that, you know, you remember, I talked to some of the people at the temple afterwards and, you know, they, they talked about how, you know, working to prepare for the ritual, going to, you know, collect the wood, um, helping around the temple in the days beforehand, and then finally being able to walk across the fire, um, you know, it made a real impression on them. So this is, you know, how do you take, um, again, the experience of the Buddhas? How do you take a piece of enlightenment and then give it to people? So the Saito Goma is, is this, this type of practice. Wonderful, wonderful. Uh, yes, I can now uh, begin to understand why it's called esoteric. So it's a, you know, it's a very impressive. So uh, yes, now we want to talk about the artwork uh, in Shingon Buddhism. So I know, you know, uh, there are many, many kinds of art uh, in Shingon Buddhism, but you know, what's the purpose of uh, uh, that kind of art? We, um, it's true. I think if you go to a Shingon temple, you'll see more art and statuary than a lot of probably any other school. Um, especially the smaller temples that you just, you know, lots and lots of statues, lots of scrolls. Artwork is important in Shingon for a, a few reasons. I think one is again, how, how do we communicate? How do you communicate something that is beyond words? So um, I, can, I can describe to you uh, dark chocolate, right? And, and tell you how, how good it is and it's, it's so rich and delicious. And, but until you actually try dark chocolate, then you don't fully understand. You don't fully have an awareness of what I'm trying to describe in words. And um, I think the ancient Buddhist masters were very wise that they looked around at the tools they had and um, especially at that period in history, there were a tremendous number of very talented artists. And if you look at the change that can come over people when they look at art, they recognize this and say, let's use it as a tool. So if you look at a very beautiful painting, 
or very beautiful sculpture. Um, you go to a museum, you'll see people sometimes gaze at a statuary or painting for you know a very long time, and they get lost in the details. They get lost in viewing it from different angles. And that experience of seeing it is um, different than reading about it. Um, I remember uh, some years ago, I was able to go see the Mona Lisa <laughs> and I heard all these things about it. And there's a huge crowd at the Louvre and you know you to wait in line. And then finally you go and I was probably the only person that was disappointed because I was like, oh, it's so small. I didn't know it was so small. <laughs> but then finally there was time and I could, I could you know, look at it. And, um, you know, it's famous because of this, you know, almost smile. And, you know, you think, what is, what is this person thinking? Um, and a lot of this detail, a lot of what's communicated in art can be so personal. It can trigger things that are personal to people, it can bring up emotions or obstacles in ways that uh, written and spoken word can't. So, um, you know, we will, as humans, take a piece of art and hang it on our wall and have it our whole life. Um, we'll hand it down. We don't, we keep books, but we don't regard them in the same way. We don't gaze at them in the same way. So I think there's something unique about the energy that art has that, you know, these ancient Buddhist masters recognized was useful, was beneficial for um, transformation. So if you, especially a lot of Buddhist artwork, the way people look at it is different from secular artwork. So. Hmm. Interesting. So, uh, yes, now we would like to talk about one of the examples, uh, mandala art form. Uh, I heard there are Taizokai mandala, a Kongokai mandala, and uh, all this, but you know, uh, when we look at them, it's so complicated, so many deities. So we don't even know how to start. So if you can explain to us a little bit the importance of it, uh, that would be wonderful. Sure. On the, uh, I guess very simply, the word mandala in Sanskrit communicates or means a circle, um, and meaning something that's very stable, something that has no beginning and no end. And I think that's a key part of the understanding because our way of thinking is very linear. Um, the way we use language, especially English, is very limited. It's very um, specific which is good for business, which is you know why people around the world speak it. It's not so good for spiritual concepts. So um, when you're trying to communicate something that's very um, broad, something very expansive and, and that does not have limits, art is better for that. So the mandalas um, are trying to express through a collection of art. You mentioned there's so many deities depicted in the mandala. They're trying to depict all of the different aspects of the, first, all the skills we need, right? So the, the Taizokai would symbolize the world we're in now and all the skills that we need to gain um, to overcome the various obstacles that we have in life so that we can achieve enlightenment. And the Kongokai would symbolize um, all of the attributes that you get as a result of enlightenment and the ways that you use those skills to teach sentient beings and all of the different, um, how deep these ideas of compassion and wisdom are. So um, 
in, in one way, you know, very simply, they're diagrams. All, all aspects of education have diagrams. So you learn something and then they'll, they'll draw a chart. And uh, you take that same information and represent it visually and people interact with it differently. They can learn from it differently. Um, it uses another part of our, our mind. So the two mandalas are like this. They are complex. And I, I always want to tell people they're, they're not complex just to be complex. Human beings are complex. And so the Buddhas compassionately have to respond to all of our complexities to give us different tools to work on ourselves. So it's not a one size fits all. It's a very specific, um, finely made tools to help us understand um, just how broad this thing called enlightenment is, how deeply compassionate the Buddhas are, that they provide all these different lessons. And then, you know, we have this, you know, beautiful um, graphic display of how they all interact with one another and, you know, lead us in the same pathway. Hmm. Well, again, it sounds very esoteric. So if we can actually see the mandalas and the maybe, you know, uh, in that way we can understand or uh, visualize it better. Sure. So I, uh, I have here, uh, It moves backwards on the screen for me, so apologies. Um, the Taizokai and, and Kongokai mandalas, these are the um, version with the Siddham calligraphy. So instead of the uh, statuary, it's the um, actual Siddham alphabet showing each of the different Buddhas as letters. And this is a unique form, but it's used in Shingon. I think sometimes people get um, attached to um, human shapes, and sometimes that's an obstacle for people. So it can be represented also, um, all of the ideas in the mandala, and I think this is a good example of representing them as ideas, can be represented both as um, um, human form figures or as letters in the alphabet. So they can be an actual uh, diagram. So you can use both ways. So you often find these two mandalas that uh, every Shingon temple would have some version of these mandalas inside because this is the kind of, I don't wanna say basic because it, it looks very complex, but this is the uh, standard way of uh, representing the different uh, ideas of our world and then the world of enlightenment. Mm. Interesting, but I would assume for average people, uh, shapes are a little bit better, right? I think this is a very difficult to even begin to it is actually, um, I like this form because it, it reminds me, uh, I think sometimes we, we forget that, um, yes, the Buddhas have compassion and they've, they've said they were going to help us but part of the way they're helping is teaching us so that we can help ourselves. And so when we see it uh, represented through the uh, mantra, through the actual letter, we remember we need to study, we need to actually do the practice as well. So um, I think the Buddhist teaching is, you know, the Buddhas are reaching a hand, but we have to 
we have to grab on also. So um, it's not just uh, us sitting here waiting for um, to be saved in some way, right? We have to we have to do work as well to to reach out. So mm, that's a beautifully said. So wonderful. So I think uh, it works different for everybody. So that's how I understand it. So great. So as you know, my documentary is about the Buddhist sculptors of Japan, and uh, you know, statues are very important uh, for my documentary, but also uh, statues are very important for Shingon practice as well. So what are the roles of uh, uh, Shingon statues, uh, especially in a ritual situation? So please tell us. The I think it depends on who you ask. So um, you, many people, especially in Japan, would regard the statue as the actual Buddha. That they would, um, you know, see that and practice as if the Buddha was sitting there. Um, and I think there's benefit to that because it's hard for us to maintain the energy throughout life to um, continue to practice, to continue to improve ourselves. But if we enter the temple and we see the statuary and we have this in mind that, oh, the Buddha's here right, not right now, we can be inspired to put more energy and continue our practice throughout our lives. The other way I think the statuary is important is, um, especially in ritual practice, we're asked to visualize sometimes very complex um, attributes of the Buddha. And all those attributes are skills that the Buddhas have and the ways that they are um, communicating their compassion. And that's important because we, um, we're trying to practice in the same way. We're trying to learn those same methods. So um, if you go to Washington, D.C., there's many memorials, but there is something about the um, Lincoln Memorial that really has an impact on people. So people stay there longer, they, they look at the monument longer, and I think they recognize, you know, they've learned something about American history, and they recognize this president was very important in shaping the country. But when they approach the statuary of Lincoln, they feel those ideas differently. They feel certain gravity. And statuary can give you the same um, sense when it's used in a religious context also. So we're first, you know, very basic sense, we're trying to visualize and see the Buddha. So if we have a physical three-dimensional representation, it's easier for us to visualize. So when we close our eyes and meditate, is easier to see it. Second, we're being taught something. So everything that the Buddhas are holding or the way their hands are is communicating something to us. So if the Buddha's hand is holding up this way, is communicating fearlessness that we don't have to have fear. And then we can ask, well, how do we get that? What's the process? And then we learn more about the teaching. So it's also very approachable. So throughout human history, um, you know, there's different levels of education and literacy. And so sometimes people only learn by looking at the artwork. 
they maybe were not literate. Um, or sometimes, again, depending on our, you know, where we're coming from, um, I've been guilty of this when I was in school, you get so caught up in learning and, and studying that you forget that you might need to put it into practice or you can't, you can't relax. You're always asking why, 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 why? Um, and so confronting very beautiful statuary can actually help us overcome some of those intellectual um, obstacles. So sometimes I think in the West, we have a bias against the use of statuary in Buddhist practice. So a lot of Western Buddhist centers may have no statuary or you know, very, very small uh, statuary, which would be kind of very different in Asia. Um, but if you look at the Orthodox Christian church, they use icons and they regard and use the, their art in many, much the same way. But there's a deep mystery and a deep beauty to spiritual teaching. And you know, the only way to adequately communicate that to us is through you know these very beautiful artistic representations so at least in shingon we we use a lot of um of statuary this way it's a very important method of communication and teaching mm, interesting so you know one thing it's confusing is there's a like a uh, main deity i don't know i should say deity but it's called dainichi nyorai uh, yes. Daniji Buddha, but you know, I heard all the other Buddhas and the Bodhisattvas and wrathful beings and the spiritual beings, they are manifestation of Daniji Buddha. So what is, what that supposed to mean? <laughs> That's a really good question. Um, so there's a difference in Buddhism between historical Buddhas and Daniji Nyorai. So Shakyamuni Buddha, was a human being who lived in India and who achieved enlightenment and taught. And we refer to him as the Buddha. He is the Buddha of our time. He's, you know, the person for, as far as we are concerned, who started this path. Um, Dainichi Nyorai is an anthropomorphic representation of what it is to be enlightened. Just if you took enlightenment and created a statue, that's what Dainichi Nyorai is. So if there's an ultimate truth, if there's an ultimate experience, it's not a person. It's something that all of us have the potential for. And again, that's such a difficult concept to grasp. So we create a representation. We give it a name, Dainichi Nyorai. And as practitioners, we're trying to achieve the same thing. So how do I become Dainichi? How do I have that same experience? What does that experience look like? And so the hand gestures, the mudras of Dainichi, um, how he sits, all of these things are helping us to understand what's a very difficult concept. When we say, um, you know, outer space, it's very, it's so big, it's hard to conceptualize. It's so, tremendously vast. Um, you know, science still struggles to communicate to humanity how big it is. And so if we say a light year, um, and then they get into, you know, millions and millions of light years, it's, people are like, okay, it's really big. <laughs> it's very difficult to conceptualize something that has no beginning and no end because everything in our world is very, you know, let's measure it. Let's 
quantify it. So by creating, I think, a Dainichi Nyorai, we take something that is huge and put it into a package that is approachable for humans. Then we can say, okay, go beyond it, expand beyond it. I know that's still confusing. No, no, I think it, you know, that's a really good start. So, uh, yes, now I'll, I would like to ask you, uh, what is Gohonzon? Uh, it'll be a little bit different in each um, Buddhist tradition. In Shingon, it refers to the main image of the temple. And the main image usually is, most of the temples of Japan have an origin story. Either they were um, begun you know, by a particular practitioner or imperial order, or you know, how did that temple begin? And so the main image is usually associated with that origin story. Um, and it can be any of the, you know, Buddhas, Bodhisattvas, um, you know, celestial beings. It could, it could be anything associated. You know, what it's, and it also usually denotes what's the primary practice at that temple. Um, here in the United States, so if you go to Hawaii, all of the temples, the main image is Kobodaishi. Um, that's also true for our temple here in Portland, the main image is Kobodaishi. Um, and that is expressing, again, the origin story of those temples. The temples were started by the local people and they had tremendous faith in Kobodaishi, primarily because when they first came as agricultural workers, they didn't have really good healthcare. So they would pray and they had tremendous faith that if they prayed to Kobodaishi, they would be healed. And so that faith, meant that that was our primary practice and that's the main image at the temples. So it's actually a, a really beautiful, um, you know, connection between the artwork and the needs of the people. So other temples have different, different images um, that you go around. So in Sacramento, the main image is Kanon, the Bodhisattva of Compassion. And in Seattle, it's Dainichi Nyorai. So it all has to do with, you know, what was the origin story of that temple. And that's then also usually the, the main practice. Mm, wonderful. So it doesn't need to be a uh, Dainichi Nyorai temple. No, it doesn't have to be. Um, but again, we would say, you know, all of these uh, bodhisattvas are an aspect of the full compassion, the full enlightenment embodied by Dainichi Nyorai. So it's a reflection of the of Dainichi Nyorai. Wonderful. You know, I'm really excited that you mentioned the Kobo Daishi. So I have a surprise question for you. So uh, I have a statue of a uh, Kobo Daishi uh, slash Kukai here. So what does this statue represent? So uh, I guess it represents a few things depending on, um, you know, your level of, of, of practice, but on you know, the surface, this is the founder of Shingon Buddhism. And it's important for us because this is the person who practiced this teaching and achieved enlightenment. So he's showing us, you know, he did it, we can do it also. Uh, beyond just practicing for himself, this is a tremendous figure in Japanese history. This is someone who <clears throat> completely changed the course of Japanese history. 
in a Japanese spiritual practice and set up a whole new school, built a temple complex on a mountain that exists to this day. These are tremendous achievements. And Kobodaishi's posture is showing him in practice. So if you, uh, you have to watch closely, but you'll oftentimes see um, at a certain point in the meditation, the, the priest sitting the same way. So he's showing himself in meditation. Um, and rather than, you know, usually see the Buddha sitting this way, um, ra rather than this, this is a ritual meditation form. So his implements also communicate, you know, a lot of things, holding the koko or the vajra, his wisdom, holding the um, prayer beads is similar to um, showing him overcoming all the different obstacles, um, impediments to enlightenment, all the things that uh, we need to restrain in our life in order to, um, you know, really focus on spiritual practice. So this is a bit unique, I think, amongst Buddhist schools. Um, we often get the question, you know, why, why do we have a guy sitting up there? <laughs> Where's the Buddha? <laughs> um, but I think it's a good reminder that, you know, Buddhism is unique, that it's not a, um, it's not a revealed religion, right? It's not a being that came and gives the teaching to you. It's a realized religion. Um, the Buddha woke up and said, oh, I understand now. So that insight is available to all of us. And, you know, most famously in our school, it was Kobodaishi who woke up to this. So, if, you know, in a really, I think, good sense, it's, if he can do it, we can do it. It's not someone, um, you know, 2,500 years ago in India. Um, it's someone, you know, for people in Japan and here, oh, I can go to that exact place. I can walk on the same stones where he walked. Like, I can do this too. So it's a very, uh, I can read his writings. I can see his calligraphy. Um, I can go and see his prayer beads. You know, Koyasan has these. So that that makes it, I think, for human beings, you know, a, a stronger, closer connection. Wow. Well said. Well said. We learned a lot today. I'm very excited. So yeah, uh, please tell us uh, what's going on in your world, and you know, if you have a website or you know, if you are uh, publishing a book or anything like that, uh, please tell us. Uh, well, we have uh, ongoing Dharma talks at the temple, and those are recorded and are uh, available on YouTube. So um, thanks to many of my students who requested that, we entered the digital era um, that way. We, um, you know, COVID is still going on, so we've, we've done everything online, but we are looking at new ways to uh, do outreach. And I think we're reaching a lot more people, um, you know, both here in Oregon, throughout the United States and internationally. I, I think we're counting uh, a couple continents now for our online audience. So that's that's been really good. Um, I, I'm trying to get your energy. And so we'll try to do more online. <laughs> and, uh, I will, I'll, I'll, I'll think about writing a book. So how's that? I'll, I'll work on that too. No, that's wonderful. You know, we can't wait, we can't wait. So uh, which website that, that we should go to? Like, uh, so yeah. Please tell us. Oh, sure. So if you go to uh, shingonpdx.org, that's the temple's website, and it links to our YouTube channel where you can find the uh, past and current Dharma talks. And uh, if you're also interested, um, you do uh, koyasan.or.jp. You can find the Koyasan uh, website 
And there's also an English website there now that's actually very nice and gives an overview of um, the different uh, types of meditation and practices and experiences, either if you visit Khoyasan or if you visit any of the branch temples. Hmm. Do you have a Facebook as well? Uh, yes. So you can find the Hainjoji Shingon Buddhist Temple on Facebook and the Foundation for Shingon Buddhism also. Um, and so all of the events are posted there as well. Wonderful, wonderful. Awesome. So if you think this information is useful, make sure to subscribe my YouTube channel, follow me on Twitter and Instagram, and like me on my Facebook, because that's how we do it in the 21st century. Thank you so much, Reverend Finchy, for coming here and explain to us about the Shingon Buddhism. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I really appreciate your energy. I know your enthusiasm is helping a lot of people to learn about Buddhism and Butsuzo. So thank you. Thank you so much.